Guten Morgen and welcome to the Paddock Pass podcast. My name is Neil Morrison. I'm bringing you this episode from a leafy suburb just outside the town of Groningen. I'm joined today by two very capable and able colleagues, Mr. David Emmett of modomatters.com. Good morning, David. How are you? Uh, I am not so bad. Thank you very much, Neil. And I'm delighted to welcome back to the show very special guest, one-time contributor to the Paddock Pass podcast before, I think, Adam Wheeler of On Track on Off Roads. Second appearance, yes. So uh, trying to, um, you know, up the ante. Uh, nice weather again here, you know, in well, just outside of Assen. And it was a fantastic, you know, spread for the Grand Prix, wasn't it? 71st running, actually, of this race. Yes, we'll try not to mention the C word when we talk about Assen because we know how, uh, how that impacts you, uh, Adam, and impacts your moods. Uh, but it was a pretty interesting weekend of racing, the eighth round. 2019 uh, as a whole, we're uh, nearing the summer break and uh, well, I guess uh, race in Barcelona felt like it had something quite decisive for the championship. This was again uh, a pretty good weekend for the championship leader, Marc Marquez, but I think the big talking point of this weekend has to be, uh, well, I would say the resurgence of Yamaha, but uh, I think this was kind of boiling almost in Barcelona. We saw Quattro get a podium there, Vinales had not be for that uh, first lap incident with Lorenzo might well have uh, given Marquez something to think about, but he really brought it all home this weekend, David, and uh, was pretty untouchable. Yes, yeah, if he hadn't have been so, um, I want to say, if he hadn't have found it so difficult to get past uh, Mark Marquez, if, it, if he had been faster in a slightly different section of the track, then it would have been much easier for him to... Um, I think he would have he would have got to the lead uh, much earlier, and he, and he and he would have disappeared off. Um, but yeah, there was no stopping Vinales. It was fairly obvious on Saturday. Mark said, uh, Mark Marcus said, uh, if there is a track where Yamaha is going to succeed, it's going to be here. Um, and he was right. Um, the, the Vinales looked absolutely fantastic. He was clearly much faster. If you look at his pace in the last, I think the last couple of laps, he was still doing 34 zeros, where everyone else was doing, or 34 twos, 34 threes, where everyone else was doing 35 zero, 35 six, 35 seven. So um, completely dominant, completely deserved win, and just what Yamaha needed. Yeah, this isn't. The first time this season, though, that Vinales has come to a race with uh, expectations uh, pretty high, Adam. I mean, uh, we thought in Qatar, for example, that his pace throughout the weekend, his qualifying was good. In Le Mans, okay, his qualifying was terrible, but rain or dry, he looked really good. Uh, how come he was able to bring it all together this weekend? I think there's two telling signs, really, that you know they've clearly found some mark of progress in that side of the Amha garage, um, whereas Valentino Rossi seems to be another story, of course. I think you know Maverick, as we saw in Barcelona, has managed to solve some of his uh, woes getting off the grid. Um, you know, he seems to be a little bit of a lively starter now. Um, there's clearly been a bit of an uptake of confidence also in the way he can push that machine in the early early stages. And then if you see the race yesterday, get the chance to watch it, uh, even like a highlights package, there probably will be one or two mistakes that uh, Bignano's made in the early sections of that race. And he still was able to keep running with Marquez and keep Fabio in check and keep them in sight as well. So, I mean, how many times over the last 18 months have we seen him mired, you know, in the deep top 10 and not really able to make any kind of significant proce uh, progress? So, you know, they've, they've made a step. I mean, he's obviously working with Esteban Garcia, you know, his crew chief there. You know, there were there were positive signs in tests and the first Grand Prix in Qatar where he took pole position. Um, you know, you just hope that Maverick, he, he arrived to two kind of tracks that he likes. I mean, Saxon Ring could be like a, a curveball 
But uh, let's see if he can keep up this pace because I think, you know, um, it would be good for, for Marquez to have some sort of consistent threat. You know, that's, that's what MotoGP needs at the moment, especially after the, the case with the Ducatis. I think the problem is about a consistent threat that Mark is not getting a consistent threat. He, he's been threatened by lots of people, but they're all different people and there isn't one person who's really taking the fight to him. And so, um, I mean, it's good for the series that, that, that we've got lots of different winners. Um, but I think uh, it, it's a shame for the championship that we've got lots of different winners and Mark Marquez. Yeah, because that's just playing right into Marquez's favour. Um, what was the difference this weekend in terms of the Yamaha? Because we, if you listen to Marquez, if you listen to Cal Crutchlow, any of the Ducati riders, they said following either Quartararo or Vinales through the final sector of the Aston track, that really fantastic, fast-flowing uh, band of uh, tarmac includes some great corners, including like the Ramshook and Jorge Haida, real quick changes of direction. What was so good about the Yamaha there? Because it seemed that that was where they were making the difference. What you just said, those quick changes of direction, um, the Yamaha and the Suzuki as well, because I, I think we were robbed of a great fight if Alex Rins hadn't have uh, crashed out on the uh, on the third lap because he looked really really strong as well, um, and the Suzuki does the Suzuki does exactly the same thing as the uh, as the Yamaha. It changes direction really well. It holds a it holds a line really well. It holds a lot of corner speed, and uh, Assen is really really a corner speed co uh, track. That's what they did well. That's what uh, uh, that's where they were really gaining because the only real place where uh, um, Marquez could attack uh, or whether Ducatis were strong was Turn One um, and uh, the GT chicane. Um, uh, after the race, uh, Vinales said that where uh, because it, it was strange. It was strange because you saw Vinales coming out of me when we were Turn Twelve really strong running really hot up to uh, onto Marcus's tail almost sort of colliding into the back of him sometimes um, trying to get past him but that that part Hoheheide the turns 13 and 14 it's a really really fast flick and at that those sort of speed it turns into about uh, you know sort of 20 centimeters of tarmac the the, uh, the that you've got so there's not really a lot of a lot of room to pass um, uh, and then you start breaking for the uh, for the left hander of uh, of the Ramshook and that uh, the, that breaking section that was where Marquez was stronger, so it was really that was one of the reasons it took so Vinyal so long to actually get past Marquez because he was there was that contrast of of where the two, where the two riders were were, were stronger. Do you think that Aston really kind of like highlighted the, the difference in the machinery this year and also the brilliance of Marquez? Because, you know, you did have a rider like Joan Mir figuring in the top five. I mean, it was clearly one of his best runs of the season. His motorcycle was suited to that particular circuit. And, you know, the Giacassis, you know, I mean, Andrea De Vizioso was making noises after the Barcelona test that some new tweaks on the chassis had helped the turning with the Desmos Adici. But, you know, we didn't really see that, you know, last weekend. So it was the it was it was a track for the Yamahas, it was a track for the Suzukis, and it was a place where the Hondas, apart from Mark uh, and the Ducatis, struggled. So it was kind of a, like a little bit of an, an anomaly, I want to say, if I can say that word properly. Anomaly. Anomaly. There you go for the season so far, perhaps. Wasn't all about Vinales, of course. Fabio Quattararo was uh, pretty stunning throughout the weekend, up until the race. He was uh, either first or second in all of the sessions. Um, a really another great weekend from him. He led us led the race for the first time in MotoGP yeah. and uh, looked great for the first part. But um, yeah, we've seen some pretty strange issues with him 
uh, trying to manhandle his M1 coming out of Distruben onto the uh, the back straight. Um, obviously, that uh, operation on his uh, on his right arm uh, before the Barcelona race to uh, alleviate arm pump was uh, was something that was affecting him through the weekend. Um, how did you see his weekend? Yeah, I mean, the I spoke to Wilco Zielenberg after the uh, after the race, and then briefly again a little bit later, and he was saying that you know one of the, one of the big problems was. The because the because the surgery is still healing, everything is still healing. You can't massage that arm. He'd been having problems with that arm all weekend, and it's fine for you know a single lap, but uh, doing long race runs, uh, the, the the you know the tension in your arm would build up and uh, and you couldn't sort of alleviate it. There was a, there was a buildup of fluid. They were loosening his leathers. Uh, his, they were t- you know sort of bandaging bandaging his arm up every uh, uh, at the start of every session. Uh, but I think you saw that there were a few times because it looked really odd. The uh, Quattararo leading coming out of the strub and, and then all of a sudden like backing off. It looked like he'd missed a gear or the engine was cutting or there was a technical problem and it was just the bike was shaking so much that he had to back off. Um, he said himself that he'd chose a bit of a, a, a wrong line he was trying to say he wasn't going uh, to the left of the track he wasn't going wide enough um, uh, on the exit um, and keeping to the wrong part of the track and then when uh, Vinales and Marquez actually passed him he saw what they were doing and saw that it was better and then had, uh, had fewer problems there but you know by that time he'd um, already buggered his arm up bad enough uh, uh, with the with the head shakes so but he also made a comment on the wind didn't he he said that was why he had to change the line and move across from that side of the track i mean it was it was spectacular to see as well as very scary um and you, you kind of think well you know does a couple of meters really make that much difference but it obviously did later into the race but yeah i mean that's the thing because you saw it in moto three as well moto three and moto two because moto two was a really exciting race for much the same reason we had lots and lots of um action there was lots of stuff going on because the wind uh basically the 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 vein slung which is that's that that back straight that heads more or less sort of south south southeast and the prevailing wind direction in in holland is always uh, from the south uh, uh, it's always from the southeast uh, so you're always sort of straight into the into the headwind but it's never precisely straight on it's always just a little bit from the start from one side or or another um and there's not much sort of protection there's not much sort of keeping you away from the um uh, keeping you out of the wind so yeah if you can just just being a, on one spot can make quite a big difference, and um, it's, it was really, really visible what was happening with uh, with Quattararo. Yeah, we had two Yamahas on the podium. Uh, Franco Morbidelli appeared to be having a pretty tough weekend uh, for the most part, but recovered really well. Has to be said in the race, got a fine fifth place, a nicely executed pass on Danilo Petrucci at the Gert Timoshiki in the final lap. Um, three Yamahas in the top five. Um, there was one Yamaha notable uh, or its absence pretty much all weekend. And this is a track that uh, Valentino Rossi loves. Yamaha historically has loved as well. Rossi uh, won here in 13, 15 and 17. But, well, his challenge wasn't uh, wasn't apparent. And what was what was up with Rossi? Because he's gone to Mugello recently. He's gone to Assen, two of his favorite tracks historically, two of his most successful tracks. And uh, he suffered a nightmare. Yeah, I mean, he just, uh, I think he was basically behind the, uh, sort of uh, behind the ball all all weekend because he got off to a bad start, couldn't really find a feeling, and then they end up chasing their tails all uh, all week and, and never really find a setup. There's also, um, 
Valentino Rossi is 40 years old. He's obviously still competitive because he finished in Qatar six tenths of a second behind the winner. I mean, unfortunately, it was fifth, but it's still six tenths. Looked like he could have, uh, he came really close to winning in Austin. But this is one of the most physical tracks, um, one of the most physically demanding tracks. And there's sort of, you know, that, especially that last sector of the track is really, really tough because there's so many high speed changes of direction and especially with the wind. Is his age a factor in that? It's hard. At, at some point, Valentino Rossi will start to decline and we're sort of, we're closer to that point uh, that, that when he will start to decline. Is he started declining now? I really, really, I find it really difficult to say. Um, it's inevitable that it will happen at some point. And maybe it's at tracks like Assen where we, where we start to see it. Here, I think it was mostly just set up. They couldn't find the right setup. But uh, yeah, it's odd. He was quite good at masking it. I mean, you know, when he was talking in the press yesterday, there was no kind of signs of concern or no worries. I mean, you would think the questions about his motivation and his longevity will start to service as the results don't, you know, come along. I mean, you know, it was Matt Burt on the TV commentary that said that was the, fir the, the first time since 2011 he'd had three DNFs in a row. So, you know, I think in, in the media debrief, he said, well, was it 98? You know, so, I mean, uh, Valentin obviously wasn't even in the premier class in, in 98. So, um it's, uh, or maybe he was. No, he wasn't. He wasn't. That's right, 2000. So, you know, he's, it's just hard to know where his head's at a little bit at the moment. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't question his motivation. He seems just as motivated as ever, and he's also just as good as ever. You could, I mean, he's still competitive, and this is probably the most competitive MotoGP field that's ever been. So that's amazing. But he, he does seem to struggle, and he also seems to struggle whenever Maverick does... Well, that wasn't the case at Barcelona, but they, it's, they seem to yo-yo. They seem to sort of, you know, take it in turns to be good. And, you know, there was, it was definitely Maverick's turn to be good in, uh, in Assen. Yeah, he definitely seemed to think that he had found something on Sunday. Um, it was a, a bit of a wild pass down the turn that took himself out, also Takanakagami, uh, who he was attempting to overtake at that point. Um, but Rossi seemed to think that in warm-up they found something and he was trying to get toward the front as quickly as possible and well there is reason to think that maybe he could have enjoyed a sort of Morbidelli-esque race where he might not have been fighting for the podium positions but up there with the Ducatis yeah but unfortunately it's too late if, you know finding something on Friday morning is all well and good but or sorry yeah finding something on Sunday morning is all well and good um, but if you're starting from where was it 15th or something yeah 14th that's a very long way back and in this field it's so difficult to pass it's so competitive it was fine but 10 years ago when you found something on Sunday morning um, uh, when you you know ended up qualifying a bad qualifying meant you qualify sixth or seventh uh, but now there are so many good riders there's so many good riders that you have to overtake there are so many competitive bikes it's so much harder to get past people um, that Sunday morning is too late if you're looking at the bigger picture as well what is he now just looking checking the stats he's fifth in the championship 88 points behind Marquez I mean that that tenth world crown that's just been dangling like a carrot for a few years now you know all but gone uh, you know what does he continue to race for? I mean, it's a silly question, but, you know, he still has another year to go. But I, I still think the motivation, you have to, you know, is it trying to find another win for the first time since when When was his last victory? Yeah. Last, uh, 17, no, two years no, ago. Yeah, two years ago. So that's quite a dry spell. 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah, but he's, I mean, he still has the motivation. He's still, uh, I mean, uh, personally, I think a 10th title is uh, almost impossible, especially if Mark Marquez is riding. Um, I think that uh, he can still win races and he really, he, he still believes that he can be competitive. I think for as long as he feels that he could, uh, that he can win races, he's going to keep, uh, keep riding. And this, if you finish six tenths behind the winner at Qatar, then obviously you can still win races. Yeah, yeah. It is important to highlight, I guess, that after Austin, we were talking talking about him as uh, one of the names in the title race. So I guess it's important not to get too ahead of ourselves. Saxon Ring finished second there last year, called it one of his best rides of the season. So, uh, yeah, maybe we should reserve judgment for a little later in the year, but uh, some worrying signs, I would say, uh, for Rossi nonetheless. Anyway, fantastic weekend for Vinales. Um, yeah, fifth different winner, 2019, the fourth different manufacturer to win in 2019 as well in just eight races. Quite impressive numbers there. Um, but, well, obviously Maverick was delighted. The man in second place, though, also seemed pretty happy with his uh, weekend's work. Um, whenever Mark Marquez does finish second, he still manages to find a way to extend his championship advantage. Uh, 44 points now ahead of Andrea De Vizioso. And uh, I think we can see from the struggles that Jorge Lorenzo had, crashing out on Friday morning, injuring himself to the extent that he's now out of the Dutch Grand Prix and the German Grand Prix. Karl Crutzler was not comfortable at all throughout the weekend. Uh, Marquez was making the difference here. Yeah, and it says everything that, you know, Cow is the next best Honda rider and he's 10th uh, in the championship standings. Um, and also commented yesterday from the five years that he's been riding the RCV, this has been the hardest so far. So it's a further testimony to, to how, you know, well Mark is doing or how, you know, I don't know how astute he's been with that motorcycle this year. Um, you mentioned the championship lead. I mean, that was his biggest uh, takeaway from yesterday, Neil. Um, and Andrea De Vizioso was a little bit uh, meh about the whole experience yesterday, wasn't he? Um, now tracking behind how many points in the championship? Quite a 44. So, you know, you're stretching up to almost two Grand Prix. Um, and David, I mean, it's almost like a formality, would you say? I uh, Formality is a big word, but I mean, yeah, it's hard to see anyone stopping Mark from winning a uh, uh, from, from, from winning the championship this year uh, again as I said earlier the problem is that um, there are lots of people who can beat uh, Mark Marquez but the problem is that there are lots of people who can beat Mark Marquez there isn't one consistent person who's beating him and taking points off of him uh, the people I mean yeah Mark Marquez is always annoyed when he doesn't win um, but he was perfectly happy to let Maverick Vinales win because Maverick Vinales is not a threat in the championship. And, um, you know, like he always, he manages, he always manages to find Mugello. He hated coming second at Mugello, but it was Danilo Petrucci who, who he came second to and he finished ahead of, um, uh, he finished ahead of Andrea Dovizioso. So the, he just finds a way to extend his championship. The, the problem with the Honda seems to be this engine braking. That was certainly what Carl uh, Crutchlow was saying. That, I think, is interesting. I think it's going to be very interesting at Saxon Ring. Um, obviously, it's a corner. It, it, it's a track where you're spending a lot of time on the, uh, on the side of the tyre, but it's also a, a track where you are um, using the engine brake a lot because you are sort of braking at an angle. Um, Marcus has been absolutely unbeatable there. I don't think he's lost there nine, yeah, nine years in a row, which is insane. Uh, 
as you said, Valentino Rossi was second there and he was pretty close, a couple of seconds were behind, I think. Um, it's going to be really interesting to see the Suzuki. You've got to think the Suzuki's going to go fast around there as well. So, yeah, Mar Marquez is clearly the best rider in the world at the moment. Doesn't mean he's unbeatable. Um, uh, but it does mean, again, when he, when he loses... He finds a way to extend his lead in the championship. And that's the only thing he cares about. Well, it's not the only thing. He really, really, really cares about winning. But he cares about winning championships that little bit, that, that, that little bit more. So he's prepared to sacrifice. I think Dovicioso said the same thing. He finds a way. Um, uh, the, the trouble with, the heart, with, with Marquez is that he is consistent. So when he's not winning races, he's always on the podium. Um, and that's been, that's been the difference. So let's assume me kind of right off Saxon ring, you know, next weekend then what happens at Bruno? Does that level things a bit more? Does, will that see some like the Ducatis come more into play? I mean, it's also been a playground for, for Rossi in the past. I don't know. I think it's uh, it's tough to say. Um, you look at last year and the second part of the season was fantastic for the Ducatis. Yeah. They were competitive everywhere. But I think with Honda's 2019 engine and Marquez riding the way he's riding, I don't think the Red Bull ring is such a shoe-in for, um, for Ducati anymore. Uh, places like... Bruno as well, I think Marquez will be right up there. And you have to factor in the fact, um, the thing that uh, the Suzuki is so much better than last year as well. So I think, you know, we don't have, um, I don't think we have a run in the second half of the season where Davizios is going to win three or four races on the trot. No, I mean, you'd have to think that uh, the, the Ducati will be strong at Bruno, uh, perhaps stronger than last year. Um, but the Suzuki could do well there as well. You know, the Yamaha might not even be that bad because they, sure, they're down on uh, horsepower and acceleration a little bit, uh, but there are enough places where the, where the Yamaha can make up. I think... I, I think that we're going to see um, uh, Marquez win at uh, win in Austria because uh, the bike has got the horsepower that was missing in the last couple of uh, ugly years and there aren't really any corners at, um, uh, at the Red Bull ring. Uh, after that, Silverstone, Silverstone's a bit, of a, a bit of a track like Assen where lots of different bikes could win just depending. Um, Misano, yeah... Hard to say. Hard to say who's going to win there. Aragon. You have to think that uh, that uh, Mark Mark is going to win there because he always wins there. So yeah, the, it doesn't really look like there's a lot of places for for Dovizioso to get points back. Wasn't Vinales also saying recently that the Bruno test, or maybe it was Rossi commenting on that for Yamaha, was a pretty key thing. So I mean that that session after we're on round eight now, so round nine, Saxon ring round ten. Um, and of course, nothing's going to really switch on when it comes to the engine. But, you know, maybe if there is some discoveries or something Yamaha could bring, then that could be key. Yeah, well, yeah but I mean, the, the thing for uh, Rossi about the Bruneau test is that that's about 2020. It's about next year. Um, they really need to be bringing something. Uh, well, really, they need to have their first version of the, of the 2020 entry uh, engine uh, ready at, at Bruneau so that they can... Uh, make the right the, the right choices for the rest of the uh, for so they've got some data they can come back with a revised version at Valencia and Jerez and then uh, another uh, uh, another test uh, at Sepang so then go to Sepang and make a final choice knowing that they're much closer than they have been before and that, that, that that's that's been the, power, the 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 difference but I mean I think for Yamaha the, the chassis is I mean you know we saw just how how good that chassis was how stable that chassis was uh, how fast it was in Mavericks win so um, what they're missing what they're missing is engine uh, 
Uh, but to come back to you know Ducati and who can win for the rest of the season, yeah, it's really hard to see how anyone consistently gets points back from Mark. Yeah, so moving on to Ducati in their weekend at Assen. Um, it's been quite a while, so I can remember Davizioso as down as he was on Saturday after qualifying uh, 11th. Um, dejected, he was really pretty done in the dumps. Um, couldn't really find many positives. Uh, I find that I've been saying this, or we've been saying this a lot this year. It was a really good ride from him on Sunday. I mean, he basically took the maximum that he could have done from 11th on the grid, considering the strengths of Marquez and the Yamaha's. Um, however, it's just not quite good enough. I think we could say the same thing about Austin, where he recovered from 13th to finish fourth. Uh, Hereth, where he finished fourth, which is never a great track for Ducati. Um, and again, here, I mean, it was a, it was a good ride from him. Um, he was struggling all weekend. He got the best possible result, but he still lost seven points. I mean, just to just flip that for a moment, Neil, I mean, it was Danilo Petrucci was a little bit more transparent about what seems to be going on with, with that factory bike. I mean, he mentioned he was using phrases like the best bike he's ever ridden on Saturday. And then, you know, when it came to sort of F, FP4, I think, you know, going into Q1, Q2, um, you know, those hotter sessions during Saturday, he was, he said it was, they were struggling, you know, they couldn't find any kind of solution, couldn't get on the pace. So it seemed like, you know, there's, there was something going on with the Ducatis when the temperature pushed up, but this particular track that was, that was slightly mystifying. And even though Divizioso wasn't very uh, revelatory about that, um, you know, it, as you say, he managed to find sort of something on Sunday that helped turn it around. I think one of the things which turned it around was just the temperature but also if you look at the gap there was a still there was a good gap back to uh, back to the Ducatis uh, they were they were a, a fair way behind so there is how can I put this um, the Ducati, it was an excellent result for the Ducati at a track where they shouldn't have been any good um, the, the heat didn't help them because it took away some of the grip and they need the grip to if they if they want to make any stand any chance of getting the thing around the corners the wind didn't help because yeah. that also uh, exactly. you know they struggle in the change of direction they've always changed struggled in the change of direction they've always been more sensitive to wind which is one of the reasons they've, they've also struggled at, at a track like Phillip Island for example um, uh, they had lots and lots of things sort of running against them so to come away with what was it fourth fifth fourth and sixth fourth and sixth is actually, it, it's a really, really good result. It's just that it doesn't help Dovizioso in the championship because Mark came second and Mark gained more, yet more points on him. It was interesting listening to Jack Miller yesterday. He was really dejected with ninth place. He was, I think, 12 seconds back at Dovizioso and said that that's just not good enough. Um, yeah, he said it was the most boring race of his life because from the very start he realised he had no feeling and he was just essentially taking the laps off. But he said uh, he's been quite perplexed. One of two caddies... Um, almost uh, jokers in recent years has been able to has been their ability to use the soft tire in racing conditions to be able to manage that and he said anytime they fitted the soft tire after two or three laps it was just not working to the level that uh, that they needed and that's something that has kind of hindered them um, in recent weeks in Barcelona and then again here um, so he said he was going to basically have a meeting with some people from Michelin to try and get to the bottom of this yeah Michelin have been uh, as a tendency uh, Michelin have been going slightly softer because they've been working with compounds uh, to produce more grip and that has allowed them to go uh, towards sort of slightly softer comp uh, compounds. I had a very long and complicated uh, conversation with Piero Taramasso on Saturday night at the debrief where I was trying to figure out where I said, so you're, you've been going so going softer with compounds? He said, no. Um, 
because it's complicated. Tires is just black magic, really. It's total voodoo. Um, but basically, what it comes down to is they are going a little bit softer with the uh, with the with the compounds, uh, the while keeping the tire as um, uh, as stiff as it was before. But that means that they're using up the tire a little bit, a little bit, uh, a little bit more. There were only what three right There were only three riders who to, who chose the soft tire. Um, oh, oh, five. Well, we, three riders that count. Um, uh, Mark Marcus and the two Suzukis, and the two Suzukis changed on the grid. Uh, and Juan Mir said, like at, at the end, the tire was completely destroyed. He, he, he lost a lot of ground in the last uh, in the last few laps. Maybe Rins could have uh, managed that tire a, a little bit better. Uh, but yeah this was again I think sort of um, a sign that the, the, the soft tyre wears and it, and it needs to be managed very carefully and it's just that little bit softer because it gives that little bit more grip, uh, a grip. it's obviously raceable and successful because Mark Marquez finished second on it uh, sure, it was Mark Marquez, um, but it is—it's it, that little bit. It was that little bit more difficult for uh, for the Ducatis, and they might have to start to look at how they can exploit the soft tire again. Yes, and next up for them, Saxon Ring. Fun times ahead for the boys in red. Do you think you know Dabizioso has been there or thereabouts for the championship for a couple of years now? I mean, is he ever really going to make a potent push for that title? If you look at the, if you take a step back and look at Ducati, but their four riders and the stability they have there, they are the strongest manufacturer. I mean, they don't have Jorge Lorenzo in the factory team anymore, pushing for different styles of, uh, you know, the shape of the tank or different kind of aerodynamics or being very particular about how he needs that motorcycle to work for him. They seem to have quite four set riders there, a very sort of concrete structure headed by Dalinga. I mean, it's... Um, you know, you'd think if, if there's one manufacturer that's going to be able to make a push up and, and fight something like the might of Marquez, then it might be them. Um, this is absolutely true, but they, the bike still has this fundamental weakness that it won't turn. Or, well, it won't turn. That's, uh, that's, it turns much, much better than it ever did. Um, but it still doesn't turn as easily as the, as the other bikes. And that is uh, before... They had the horsepower advantage, and they, you know, Dovichosa could use that. Uh, the, the the riders on the Ducats could use that horsepower advantage and then manage in the corners. Basically, they would just out drag you, get the bike, stop you in the corners, hold you up, and then out drag you again. Because they also have not just horsepower but outstanding traction. Um, it's the way that they get out of corners, which is which is what makes the difference. That whole shot device also. Um, Sure, the whole shot device helps them get away from the start, but really what it does is it exploits the mechanical grip and the traction which that bike has. And I think that's probably the strongest thing. That's why it accelerates so hard, and then the horsepower helps um, uh, helps them get to sort of like higher top speeds. Honda has Honda has taken that away. Honda has now has the same horsepower advantage, so um, they uh, and and the bike will turn uh, and and the bike will turn a little bit uh, it turns a little bit better it has still has weaknesses but it certainly turns better than the, than the Ducati and so Dovichosa doesn't really have that advantage anymore so putting you very much on the spot David you know Andrea Dovichosa is 33 years old he's the second oldest rider in the class could he ever be MotoGP world champion uh, it depends on whether Mark Marcus but the, the trouble is like it's all theoretical right now um, while Mark Marcus is riding because Mark Marcus is clearly the best rider on the grid um, we have to wait and see how Fabio Quattararo develops. Uh, we have to wait and see how Alex Rins develops. I mean, Alex Rins, 
said, I, well, well, I can't remember, it wasn't Barcelona, I think it was um, after Mugello. He said, well, if we're not win championship this, if we don't win the championship this year, we'll win it next year. After Le Mans, after Le Mans yeah, exactly. So, you know, he's confident, he believes that uh, he can win and the Suzuki's a really good bike. So, um, is it, it's definitely getting, a, it's starting to get a little bit too late for Dovicioso, but Dovicioso's riding as well as he ever did and uh, the, but the Ducati has to improve. Well, we said it time and again, but you do think Suzuki is slightly hamstrung by having two bikes on the grid. KTM have four bikes for the first time this year, and maybe we'll see the fruits from all that data collection and development for 2020-21. Um, you know, if Suzuki's don't, if they don't get any more bike numbers, could that also stop that machine becoming a world championship contender? Uh, I'm not sure because I think the bike is already a fantastic bike. The, I mean, its weakness, it's, if, it's, if it has a weakness, it needs a little bit more acceleration. They've improved uh, uh, corner entry. Um, uh, it turns, I mean, Jack Miller has been deeply entertaining about, uh, about the Suzuki that you can turn, it'll t it will turn on literally anything. And you see in some of the passes which Rin's made, I mean, it's almost insulting the way that he's riding around people um uh, you know around the outside around the inside it's just sort of like you know, it, it's it making making them look like amateurs but that's just because of that bike um a little bit more horsepower certainly wouldn't go amiss so i don't i don't think there's much wrong with it of course it of course it would help having um, uh, having a uh, having a satellite bike the question is whether that would drain because Suzuki is a very small factory, uh, whether it would drain the resources from Suzuki, uh, from, from the factory team, uh, enough to actually weaken them. So it's, it's, a, it's a very fine balancing act. I think they would benefit from the extra data, but um, do can Suzuki actually afford to run uh, a satellite team? I know they really, really want to, or certainly the team certainly wants to, but I'm not sure about uh, Suzuki Japan, uh, but we'll have to see. Yeah, it's something that uh, has been ongoing for quite some time, discussions about that. And I think Davide Brivio has indicated that next year it's going to be, well, close to impossible. But 2021 remains possibly open for, for two more Suzuki's on the grid. Uh, moving swiftly on, gentlemen, want to talk about uh, one man that has just been having a, a bit of a mare overall, 2019, Joanne Zarco. Um, does this represent... I thought you were going to say Andre and only there for <laughs> Well, that's a that's a pod that's for another podcast, Adam. Uh, yeah, John Zarco uh, was was this a, a new nadir in his KTM career, pulling out because of arm pump? I mean, you know, who am I to judge? Clearly, Assen is a tremendously physical track. He said that he struggled at Assen in previous years, MotoGP with arm pump. However, I've never seen you pull out of a podcast with arm pump, though, Neil. <laughs> it's a very good point, David. Yes, <laughs> but. Uh, I mean, what's going on here? Because it just looks like nothing is working. It was, I mean, the, the, the way those two guys work in the garage and the contrast in fortunes was highlighted brilliantly this weekend. Uh, Paulo Spargaro. A teal of two arms. Yeah, it, it, exactly. He doesn't, yeah, um, from what I can gather, doesn't have a broken bone as such in his hand. Uh, some sort of contusion. Um, An edema. Yeah, between the, the scaphoid. Something very technical that's causing a lot of swelling, a lot of pain uh, when he's breaking it into the corners. Um, you know, that's why I think Saxering would be a little bit more of a relief because he's always going to be on the left side of the bike. Um, but, you know, he, he took painkillers in every session pretty much. And um, whether the weekend finished 11th, 
Um, Johan Zarco managed only 10 laps in the race before withdrawing with, um, you know, what would seem to be arm pump as an excuse. Um, but, you know, just uh, the, a complete contrast in the way these two riders are, are building their section of the garage around them. Uh, Paul obviously has been three years on the KTM now, so he's he's well versed in how that machine feels and what he needs to do. Joan Zarco, I think, is completely lost. Um, you know, he said yesterday, even quoted officially, that they've changed a thousand things on the bike. Um, that maybe isn't an exaggeration. Uh, so, you know, and this was this was a sign, I think, that, you know, he's somewhat desperate um, and it's not going to be motivating a small determined factory like KTM that have pushed for, you know, 300 world championships and other disciplines largely on the back of their riders and their teams not giving up and, and really like, you know, just just going that extra mile. So what Zarco did yesterday is not going to be inspiring uh, the upper management of KTM. And I think it really throws his future into doubt. You have worked with KTM, you've seen them rise through MXGP motocross, Adam, um, in the last couple of years, well, many years in fact. Um, you know Pip Byra, the motorsport director, pretty well. How would someone with the competitive drive of Pip Byra react to such a thing, do you think? Well, you know, it was halfway through Bradley Smith's first season. I mean, I don't think Pip was overly uh, enamoured with the way, you know, he felt Bradley was pushing the motorcycle to its limits. Um, you know, there was some frustration there. So I think a move like this, um, you know, take the team manager, Mike Leitner. I think he's very torn. He's very torn between knowing that that kind of uh, behavior or result or action is, is going to be accepted, but also want to support the rider. I mean, Zarco is, is the most successful French Grand Prix rider ever, you know, a double world champion. Um, he's won the most Grand Prix. So, you know, th there's a talented rider in there. It's just there's some sort of trappings of psyche that's preventing this guy from, um, in my personal opinion, he hasn't rallied the team around him. He's, he's not making, a, you know, a little fortress inside that garage. He's, he's not, you know, um, taking the steps necessary. Okay, he's taking Jean-Michel Berlin to try and help him out on the psychological side. But, uh, you know, there's, there's some sort of mental block there. And he even used that word, you know, in his debriefs. I'm blocked, I'm blocked. Um, you know, f from extracting the next steps with the KTM. The contrast with Bradley Smith is quite interesting, and also with Paul Asparger. I mean, Paul loves that bike. Even though it's not competitive, he loves it because it reacts the way that he wants to ride a bike. You, he, he wants to bully a bike around the track, and um, he's, capable, he's capable of doing that, and that's the way that you make the KTM go fast. Um, uh, Zarco was a perfect Yamaha rider. Bradley Smith was the same, more of a Yamaha rider, where you are... Uh, to be smooth, the, the, the less hard you try, the less you push, the faster you go. And the harder you push the bike, the slower you go. Um, the KTM, that's completely the opposite. And so Zarco's trying to get his head around that, first of all. Secondly, as you say, there's the, the, there's the psychological point of view. There's the, uh, again, Paul is, um, uh, he has that garage worked out. He has a fantastic relationship with Paul Dravath and I did an interview with him not so long ago, uh, which I've got to put up on the website soon, where he said, um, like, uh, basically, like, like for Trevathan, it was, uh, if my rider gives me uh, sort of 100%, I'll give him 110%. Um, if he gives me 90%, I'm going to give him 60%. Um, and that seems to be part of the problem in the garage, um, that, that there is this there is this conflict, there is this, uh, well, conflict is the wrong word, there's this mismatch uh, between Zarco. Zarco, Zarco is, um, I mean, he's, a, he's, I think he's a nice person, but he's a, 
odd person. He's quite strange. He's quite um, uh, detached. Yeah, that's a really good word. That's a really good word. He's detached. He's, he's quite aloof. He's sort of separate. He's not arrogant about uh, about it. Um, he's just, you know, not not an ordinary person. Uh, he's not very. His social skills are not fantastic. He's not. A, he's not like a big group person. He's not the kind of person who will say. Mark Marquez likes groups. I mean, you know, Mark Marquez spends all of his time with his um, uh, with his crew. They all hang out together and do all sorts of things together. Um, uh, that makes it really easy when you're trying to build a crew um, and uh, sort of you know motivate all of your you know your mechanics, your data engineers, your crew chief, everyone around you to work that a little bit harder. Yeah, and uh, exactly, you have to be you have to be a leader to be a leader. And uh, Zarko is not a leader, Zarko is a rider. Zarko, uh, Zarko uh, sort of, he's more of a pilot, if you like. He wants to come in, sit down, do his thing. Um, Lorenzo can be a little bit like that as well. Lorenzo is much more of a um, uh, aloof, come in, sit down, get on the bike, um, extract every single gram of performance that's in that motorcycle. Uh, and then walk away again. But when the performance isn't in the motorcycle, then you also have to you have to find it somewhere else. Uh, you have to motivate people to work towards uh, towards that. And I think Pit Barra, because Pit Barra to me, uh, I've I mean I don't know him personally. You probably know him better than me. But he's incredibly hard. He's wow. tough. Yeah, yeah. But he's also he's also tough on himself. I mean, you know, he would uh, he's you know. The Terminator. Do you know what I mean? He would, you would, you keep on putting bullets in him, and he keep keep on coming for you. Um, he would, he would never give up. And for Zarko to give up, I think that would be for for Byra, That would be really, really tough to take. Yeah, as a former motocrosser as well. I mean, that's just the number one rule of that sport. You just don't give up. You know, even if you've fallen down six times, you keep going. So it's, uh, you know, I don't think there'll be some meetings about what happened yesterday at Assen. Um, but your point about uh, Zarko is, is really good there, David. I mean, KTM, you know, they've gone about it in a, quite a scientific way. I mean, now they've got HRC's most kind of prolific and steadfast rider, you know, from this century and Danny Pedrosa testing and trying to bring a bit of that Honda feel uh, to the motorcycle. They signed what was the most promising Yamaha rider uh, for the last two years. Um, I believe they, they thought they were signing a rider that could, elevate them higher in the world championship but what they actually got was um you know a rider a, a yamaha rider who could do that it wasn't you know i think Johan's lack of maybe versatility in, in developing that motorcycle and giving them feedback in you know what it needs to be done has been one of the, the the setbacks of this year it's certainly been slower than they anticipated half season and you know there's been incremental like stages of progress but nothing really significant i mean he's not even inside the top 10 yet and I think, you know, they were, they were wanted more by that. The, the big question now is to, what happens from here on in? And it was interesting hearing some of the French media saying, you know, they don't think he's going to last the season. And after, you know, the, the, the reaction to Bradley Smith and his two-year deal, um, you wonder if KTM maybe have a contract variation when it comes to Yoan, where they can maybe look at their option at the end of 2019. Uh, you know, we were talking about this last night as well. If, if Yoan Zaka does depart the factory team next year, who, you know, how do the chess pieces move around? But it's just hard to see how he can really make a big enough and culturally significant enough step to, to get that team going again. I mean, that's a question. The, the problem in MotoGP right now is the fact we're all, all on two-year contract cycles. So um, if we get rid of, if um, KTM were to get rid 
of Joanne Zarco at the end of the season. Uh, the only top rider currently available is um, uh, is Andrea Iannone, uh, which is not going to be an upgrade. Um, uh, there's Brad Binder coming. Uh, you know, Brad Binder's coming up, but he's going to be a rookie. So what can you really expect of him? What they really need is an experienced fast rider. Danny Pedrosa has absolutely no interest in coming back and racing because he's enjoying being able to turn up, ride the bike, and then walk away again without having to speak to us idiots. Um, so, yeah, there's... But... <laughs> Exactly, exactly. No, but Danny, um, uh, Danny Pedrosa has no interest in dealing in dealing with the media, uh, so he's not going to come and race. Um, I think also at the test he wasn't, you know, he wasn't that fast, he wasn't that close. Uh, so I, I don't think he really wants to do that. There's no one else to put on the bike until the end of 2020. So maybe Joan Zarco gets uh, gets another year, just almost almost by default because there are no there are the, the, there are no better options uh, unless Petrucci suddenly. Becomes Came available, but it's hard to see how Petrucci doesn't get the get the contract. I was told by someone from Ducati that um, they expect to make an announcement on the future um, uh, before the summer break, which would be this week sometime uh, before the Saxon Ring. Uh, actually, probably the Saxon the Saxon Ring would probably be a really good place to you know Thursday or Thursday, Thursday at the Saxon Ring is probably the the, the best time to um, it, uh, make the announcement. It means they put him in the uh, they put him in the press conference. Um, he gets to talk about how great Ducati is, that sort of thing. So, yeah, who do you put on the... If they do get rid of Zarco, who do you put on the bike? There is no one who's going to do much better. The only thing is, Zarco is not there poisoning the atmosphere in the, uh, on that side of the garage. That would be the, the only benefit. And where does Zarco go? It's kind of harsh, but it's, it's, it's very sort of fascinating at the same time to see how, you know, the the upper margin of MotoGP and, and these, this kind of slither of performance these guys exist in, the psychological demands as well. You know, when things are not going well, how do you handle it? Mm -hmm. I mean, usually that kind of segment of being an elite level sportsman is hidden. You never see it. You don't really see any kind of, you know, and, and one of Johan's problems, I think, is he's very kind of transparent about that. I mean, he, he will, he'll look kind of depressed. He has a body language that's very resigned. Um, so it is quite, you know, from a media and a storytelling point of view, it's, it's quite gripping, but it's, uh, it's, it's a quandary for KTM and, and Johan Zarco. I, I have sympathy for him. Interesting stuff. We'll have to see how this uh, develops. I did speak to Pip Byro back in Hareth, I think, and he said that um, he was giving Zarco basically until the summer break. And if there was no real upturn by that point, then he would really start getting worried. So uh, I think, well, that process is probably already well underway. Um, interesting to see how that will turn out in the coming weeks. Um, so lads, just moving on to quickly the final part of the show, our winners and losers from the Dutch Grand Prix. David, I'm going to start with you. Your big winner? Uh, Mark Marquez, because he didn't win, uh, but he extended his, his leadership in the championship. Um, just really well. And also honourable mention to Brad Binder because Brad Binder uh, finished second, I think, um, on the KTM Moto2 bike, which is rubbish. And he showed that he is quite obviously the best rider in Moto2 uh, Moto at the moment. So, uh, yeah, I think that I have to say those two just because they gained the most from this race, uh, which where they had the conditions against them. Adam. 
Um, staying on the Marquez team, my loser of the weekend was undoubtedly Alex uh, being taken out by Lorenzo Baldassari in, in Moto2. I mean, after a, a run of fantastic results for him, that was a real kick in the teeth. I mean, his, uh, his reaction was dramatic, uh, you know, and not unjustified. But uh, that was that kind of thing kept things a little bit interesting in that championship battle. And I actually thought that the Moto2 race yesterday was the best of the bunch, you know, just in terms of drama and the things that were going on. Um, you know, you kind of had everything really. And it was kind of unpredictable right up until the end. And your winner? My winner has got to be Mignales. Like you say, it was the fifth different winner this year in MotoGP. Um, you know, it was good to see the Yamahas have some sort of... Uh, resurgence how many times have we been to Mavericks media debriefs now over the last sort of year and a half and you know you'd kind of want to give him a hug almost because it was uh you know it was, it was pretty pretty miserable stuff um so to see you know a rider that you know his ability I mean maybe he's second to mark in this championship in terms of raw potential and ability on a motorcycle um you know yeah, well, I, I, I would still love to see those two, you know, just on a little bit more of a level footing, just, just going hammer and tongs. I still think that would be fantastic. Like they used to do back in the Catalan Junior Championship, you know, and some of those famous photographs you see on social media of them both as kids. So, uh, yeah, Maverick for me. And then uh, Alex Marquez, uh, yeah, he, he will not be uh, a happy chap until he gets to Germany. And you, Neil, who's your big winner? <laughs> Um, I would say my big winner is uh, Quartararo, um, just because his feats over the weekend were brilliant. His pole position was from another world. I think his performance in Q2 was just astonishing. How much quicker he managed to go than guys like Cal Quetzlaw. I think there was a 1.2 second gap between. Yeah, it, it was embarrassing how much quicker he was than, the, than, than everyone else. And the only person who, was, who got close was Alex Rins, really. Our uh, French colleague, Thomas Bojard, was out watching through the fourth sector of the track, through Hoga Haida and uh, Ramsok with Jean-Michel Bale. Jean-Michel Bale told him that that was the most difficult part of the entire calendar whenever he was racing 500 uh, Grand Prix bikes back in the, the mid to late 90s. And Quartararo through the fourth sector was almost perfect, almost perfect in his first year here as a, as a MotoGP rider. Um, and, well, would he have been up fighting with Vinales until the very end of the race if it had not been for those physical problems? Maybe. What impressed me as well was that he sorted, sorted his starts on. That's been his big, uh, his big issue through races in 2019 so far. His, his starts haven't been great. His first laps haven't been great either, like Vinales as well. But um, I think it was only Reigns and Mir who started better than him. He was up there fighting with, uh, with Marquez leading the way uh, for the first half of the race. So stunning stuff from Quadraro. And I think uh, I know you were a little bit skeptical of his, uh, of his talents, Adam, earlier in the year when he showed that first real flash at Jerez. Um, but this is now four races uh, when he's been fighting for showing the pace to be on the podium. Maybe not bringing it all together on race day, but showing the pace to be there on the podium. And for a rookie, I mean, it's uh, for a 20-year-old, it's really impressive. He's zooming up that learning curve, isn't he? I mean, he's really going for it. So, you know, full credit in that respect. I'd just like to make one mention that, you know, um, Assen has this fantastic his historic vibe about it, doesn't it? Apart from the first section, which I think is abhorrent. Um, you know, the rest of the track, you have a real feeling of, of races passed through the decades there. And it was really cool to see HRC doing their 60th anniversary this, this weekend. 
uh, Takahashi and McDoan, you know, riding those, uh, it was like three generations of motorcycles splitting the, uh, the, 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 you know, the 30 year barrier from the first Honda right up until Mark Marcus's uh, motorcycle. Um, you know, we, I think MotoGP as a whole needs to celebrate more of its heritage. Um, I still think for Formula One, that's one of the most strongest, um, you know, appeals, you know, that vast history, all the characters, um, all the circuits, the photographs, everything is, is very strong for F1. I think MotoGP needs to celebrate more of that. I mean, get some of the old bikes out of Saxon Ring, Bruno, whatever. There's always a story at every single track um, to do with, with the past. And, you know, it'd be good to see more of that. Couldn't agree more. What about your biggest loser, Neil? Uh, how about you start, David? Because I'm still going through. In fact, you know, I know exactly. Uh, Jorge Lorenzo was my biggest loser because he, uh, he didn't even appear on Saturday or on Sunday. Uh, he was back at home nursing a broken vertebrae, T6 and T8 uh, vertebrae that he fractured in that uh, pretty scary um, crash at turn seven in FP1. Um, just when you think things can't get any worse, it gets worse. And we've said that, or I've thought that about four or five times this year. I thought it couldn't get any worse after Jerez. That was desperate, but it did. Uh, it got worse at uh, Catalonia. Could it get any worse than uh, crashing and taking out three other riders? Uh, yes, it could. The next day he fell at turn nine and really banged himself apart. I think at over 120 miles an hour he crashed up there. Uh, could it get any worse than that? Well, actually, yeah, it can. And, um, I mean, it's, yeah, it's just, uh, you wonder where his head's at now. You wonder... Lorenzo's never been a guy that's crashed his brains out, not at least in the premier class, apart from, well, maybe the first part of 2008, where he really scared himself, I think, with a couple of crashes, especially the one in Catalonia. Um, thing is, now he is 32 years old, and um, you just have to wonder whether he thinks it's ever going to work, this is ever going to come back to him. He hasn't had a top 10 finish since. Uh, by the time he gets back on track in Brno, he won't have finished inside a MotoGP top 10 in 12 months. And for a rider who's a five-time world champion, it's, it's just staggering. Yeah, I mean, the only uh, uh, sort of benefit is that he comes back at Bruneau. He now has, he's going to miss the Saxon ring. Uh, and then there's the summer break. So he has a long period of recovery uh, without any races, with only, only really missing two races. Uh, it comes back to Bruneau. He should be stronger, should be fitter. Also, his scaphoid should have healed by then. He'll have been able to train. Um, it comes back to Bruneau. He has a race and then he has the test on Monday. Uh, and that, sh I mean, you would have to hope that that's, that'll like kickstart his, uh, his championship again. Um, I think that, uh, I'm, it's funny, I was going to say, I was going to say Lorenzo is my loser as well. But really, I mean, we've talked about it before. You have to say Joan Zarco because it's not working for KTM or with KTM. And it's hard to see how he comes out of it, really. Um, there are no good options for anyone in that marriage. Uh, no good options for KTM. No good options for Zarco. There's no good options if, K if uh, Zarco... I mean, you'd almost sort of like say, well, perhaps we could swap Lorenzo and uh, uh, Lorenzo and Zarco at KTM, but then it would be out of the frying pan and into the fire for both of them because um, neither of them are, are going to fit that the, the, those machines. So, yeah, it's, um, it's a bad... Um, uh, yeah... No good, uh, no good scenarios, and it's hard to see where Zarco goes from here. No good scenarios for those gentlemen, but a good scenario for me being able to share uh, a kitchen table with both of you gentlemen for this edition of the Paddock Pass podcast. Gentlemen, that brings us to an end of our discussion, the Dutch Grand Prix. It's been a pleasure as always. We're going to pack up and uh, catch our breath for a few days, and then we're off to Germany. 
such as the demands of uh, MotoGP reporter. Uh, David, thank you very much for your time, as always. Thank you very Thank you very much, Adam. And, uh, well, I hope to see you back on the Paddock Pass podcast soon. Cheers now. And thanks very much to you, listener out there, listening to the Paddock Pass podcast. A quick reminder that you can follow us on all the social media channels, Twitter, that is at the Paddock Pass pod, facebook.com forward slash Paddock Pass podcast. You can find us on, or if you do listen to us through Apple podcast devices, please leave us a review. It helps other listeners find our show. And we also have a Patreon page with some extra contents on there. If you would like to donate as little as $3 a month to the Paddock Pass podcast and uh, keeping us on the road, bringing you exciting observations, analysis and stories, uh, then you can make a donation patreon.com forward slash Paddock Pass podcast. Well, we're going to pack up, head to Germany, and we'll be back again next week. See you then.